All right, good morning, church. Uh, We're going to study God's Word, so open up to Ephesians chapter 5. If you're new to us here this morning, welcome. Um, So one of the things we've been trying to do is just look at passage after passage, verse by verse, and walk slowly through this letter. It's so dense. There's so much riches. We could easily have doubled the length of this series and, uh, and still gotten even more out of it, but I, I trust and hope that we've been encouraged. Uh, I'm going to start reading it in just a second, but before we do that, let's just take a moment and let me lead us in prayer first. God, thank you for, for your work of grace in our hearts. Thank you that you sought us when a stranger wandering from the fold of God we, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We thank you that you have forgiven our sins if we have trusted in Jesus for forgiveness and redemption. We are grateful for the gifts of salvation and we're grateful even for the ability to gather. Thank you for uh, this weekend and what it commemorates in our country, even the outflow and products of that which allow us to gather openly and without fear and without threat that we can worship you openly and we're grateful for that gift. And even while we say thank you, we also pray, as we often sing in the Christmas tradition, bid thou our sad divisions cease and be thyself our King of Peace. We, we need you, Jesus Christ, to reign over our hearts and to descend upon the church with, with the power of your peace. Help us to represent you well, to represent the gospel well, to seek one another out for peace. And even as we give ourselves, Lord, to your word this morning, we thank you for truth in scripture. Even when it says things that are um, out of step with our culture, that might be shocking to our ears to read some of the things that we're gonna read in just a moment, but I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, incline our hearts to receive your truth, otherworldly truth, from you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Ephesians chapter five, I hope you're there. I'm gonna start reading in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So it's going to be a fun morning. This is what we're uh, into. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. (laughs) Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, this is where we're going to focus particularly this morning. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. Then this might be in your Bible in bold, because it's a quote from Genesis, from the Old Testament. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, Each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect 
her husband. So the topic and issue of marriage is not inconsequential in the Bible. It's not peripheral in the Bible. Matter of fact, the Bible is bookended by marriage. It opens with a marriage in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. It closes in Revelation chapter 21 with the marriage supper of the Lamb and the new creation, Jesus and his bride, the church, joined together forever, right? Never to be separated again, right? So you've got marriage on both sides of the Bible. And right there in Genesis chapter 2 is that first marriage ceremony. There's only two people in the world, and it's Adam and Eve, and God creates Eve from Adam's side. She forms the woman, and she, he brings this woman. It's God himself, as it were, who walks her down the aisle. He steps, he steps in almost in the role of the father of the bride, and he walks her down the aisle, and he presents her to the man, Adam, and Adam opens his eyes, and he sings a song. He, prose isn't enough. He reaches for poetry, extemporaneous poetry. And he says, this at last. He's just breathing out this song at last. That's the original for at last my love. You know, that, that song goes all the way back to the ancient world back in Genesis chapter two. He sings at last. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. She was formed for him as a helpmate to him all the way back there in Genesis chapter two. And right after Adam sings the song, the narrator breaks in in the very next verse and says this, for this reason, what you just saw here, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave or cling or hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, two becoming one. Now, you know if you keep reading in Genesis chapter two, things go sideways in a major way, right? Because Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden. Sin comes flooding into the world, distorting marriage, distorting family, dysfunctional, uh, everything, right? Everything starts breaking down in the creation order, and eventually they're evicted from the garden. So they're kicked out of the garden. And so you fast forward from Genesis chapter three at the fall, and you go heading toward Ephesians chapter five where we're reading this morning and you're passing massive sweeps of human history. Empires have risen, empires have been swept away by history. Egypt has come and gone, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, some of the Roman Empire and then here we are in 60 or 62 AD, Roman Empire, third largest city in the Roman Empire, Ephesus and here, of all places, Paul, the apostle, quotes from that very first wedding ceremony. Why is he reaching back and quoting this ancient words from an ancient wedding ceremony at the beginning of the Bible? And the reason that he's quoting that is to tell us something amazing, and it's this. That after the fall, so that wedding happened before the fall, but after the fall, God had not given up on his original design of marriage. You think about it, so they're in the Garden of Eden and they were evicted from the Garden of Eden, but all the way, thousands and thousands of years later, and even today, we have a jewel from the Garden of Eden. We have something still with us today that was in the Garden of Eden, and that jewel is the gift of marriage. And Ephesians 5 says, God isn't finished with it. It's been tarnished by sin, but God, through his grace and in Christ, is polishing the gem of this gift of marriage and he's reclaiming it in Christ for his glory and for our joy. 
God is reclaiming marriage as a wondrous thing. So, so there's kind of some of the context of what we're looking at in relation to Genesis chapter two and the opening of the Bible. But let's kind of come into the present for just a moment. So I heard a story many years ago and it sticks with me as a pastor. And, and it goes like this, it was a real story of a, a man who was gloriously converted to Jesus. He had no background, had never opened a Bible, had never owned a Bible, had never read a word of scripture, no Christian upbringing, and he comes into contact with the message of the gospel, and the Lord turns the lights on, opens his heart, and he comes to faith in Jesus, and he gets baptized in his church, and he testifies in tears, and the church is in tears, right? There's a lot of people who are affected by it, and he starts going to that church for some time, for several weeks, and then he disappears. And then members of the church are like, hey, where'd that, where'd that guy go? The guy who shared his testimony. That was awesome. Where'd he go? And then somebody in the church bumped into him and said, how are you doing? Man, we haven't seen you in a long time. Are you okay? And, he, and there was a brightness in his eyes. And he says, I'm okay. I'm walking with Jesus. And they said, why, why did you leave? And he said, I'm so thankful that I heard the gospel in, in that church. But he said, I couldn't understand the sermons. He said, I felt like I needed to have a seminary degree to understand the sermons. And he said, here's, here's the dilemma that I was wrestling with and, and facing. He said, I never saw a Christian husband. I never saw a Christian dad. I'd never opened a Bible till a few weeks ago. And he said, I don't know how to be a Christian husband and a Christian dad. And I have a wife and children. So he said, I went to another church down the street. I'm growing in grace and this church emphasizes the application of God's word more than the church that I was at before. So yes, I'm growing in grace. And the thing that um, sticks with me in that is as I'm working on sermon preparation, I'm hearing that story. Because if a sermon uh, trades application for just more and more stacks of explanation, that's not a sermon anymore, it's a lecture. The word of God must be applied. And thankfully, as we study through book after book after book of scripture, we're gonna find God coming in, getting on his knees and say, hey, I wanna talk to you about this area of life. I wanna talk to you about this. And here we are in Ephesians chapter five, and what does God say? He says, I wanna talk to you about what it's like to be a Christian husband. And then he's gonna talk about what it's like to be a Christian parent. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So God speaks in practical, application-firing kinds of ways in our lives. So thankfully, God has spoken. We don't have to make it up, right? So if you've ever given a gift or you've received a gift and the gift comes and you look at it and you see three words and those three words can be pretty scary. Some assembly required. Right, you see those three words, you better read. You don't just throw out the instructions. You're not gonna be able to put the thing together to work in a way that it's designed to work. Ephesians chapter five is, is God saying, let me tell you how this is supposed to work. Let me take you all the way back to the garden. This is my original design in marriage. Walk toward it. And so what, is it, what does it sound like when God talks to a Christian husband? It sounds like Ephesians chapter five. Four exhortations for Christian husbands that we'll focus on this week. Number one. Love your wife. Love your wife. So this is the primary command in this text that's given toward husbands. Love your wives. You see in the verse there, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved 
the church. In other words, this is how God makes the gem sparkle again. That old ancient jewel that we carried out of the garden with us, God says, this is how you polish the gem. You, husbands, love your wives and love her as Christ loved the church. I had an incalculable blessing that many in our culture don't have. And the blessing is, um, I saw Ephesians 5 in my house. The best commentary to this day that I've ever read on Ephesians 5 was my dad and my mom. He loved, Bill loved Paulette. He demonstrated that. It was an example. He set the pace. He was initiating. He was affectionate. He demonstrated Ephesians 5. It wasn't in the ether out there. It was right in front of us. And I didn't notice all of what was going on in front of my eyes until later. I didn't notice the deep stuff until on reflection years and years later. But early on, what I did have eyes to see is dad's crazy about mom. And she welcomes that, right? This is, they flirt with one another. It is insatiable, right? They do it. It's embarrassing. It's a little bit cringy, but it's also kind of genius the way that they're doing it because that spelled stability. That was putting rock underneath our feet. We didn't know that was happening, but that's exactly what was happening because it was communicating. And all those trade-offs and all those exchanges of glances and words of affection, we were realizing he's not going anywhere. Literally my entire childhood, this is an incalculable blessing, it never crossed my mind he might leave or she might leave. Ephesians 5, he loved his wife as Christ loved the church. You see that in verse 25. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And I I saw that not just in their words, I saw it in the way that he helped her saw it in the way that he heard it, in the way that he spoke to her. So when I went to, to the church office with dad in the summers, we're off of school, and so we'd just be frenetic and all around the place, and sometimes mom would say, hey, t- take Matt to work with you today, and he can play around the church building, right? And I remember bringing my BB gun in, and I'm shooting the symbols on the drum kit from the spotlight place or the VBS place. So I'm doing all kinds of stuff I probably shouldn't have been doing, but in any case, I remember if I was in the office with my dad and he was studying and the phone rang, I could tell if it was mom because there was a voice he had when it was mom that was different. It was more tender. This, I know who this is on the other end of the phone. I saw the way that he respected her. I saw the way that he insisted that we respect her as well. Matter of fact, that was the cardinal rule. That is the unbreakable. She's my girl. She's your mom. She's my girl. You talk to her this way. You respect your mother. Notice where God puts the bar. I mean, the bar is, is the word just as. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So that's a, what is that phrase, gave himself for her, conjuring up by way of an image? The cross. That's the picture. Love her like Jesus loved his bride back against the wood flayed open, arms extended, pinned up for his bride. That's how you love. Love just like Christ loved the church. In other words, love is costly. 
Love is costly. This text is not saying do what comes naturally. It's saying do what's otherworldly. Do what you could never do in your own power. When you think of the standard of love, you're called to emulate. Paul says, picture Jesus dying for his bride. Giving his life up for his bride. That, friends, that's gospel-powered marriage. Gospel-powered husbanding. This is the next point. God empowers Christian husbands to display self-sacrificing love for our wives. If your role as a husband doesn't feel like there's any self-sacrifice going on regularly on a daily basis, you're not doing it right. Love is costly. It's meant to be that way. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be costly. Costly to your pride. Costly to your comfort. Costly to your actual wallet. Right? It's costly, self-sacrificing love that the former president of Columbia International University, the late Robertson McQuilkin, was a compelling example of this because his wife uh, moved to a period where she had advanced stage Alzheimer's and he resigned his position as the president of the university, and I watched the speech again last night, a one minute, 26 second speech that must have had every room in the, every eye in the room must have been moist just hearing this man. And he said, Muriel has gotten to the point where um, she is almost happy when she's with me, but she is never happy when I'm away. She is miserable and she's fearful and she's terrified. And he said, so the call is obvious. I need to be with her all the time. And this is what he, he said. And then here's how the story goes. People urged him, Muriel doesn't know you anymore, doesn't know anything really, so it's time to put her in a nursing home and get on with life. When a student asked Robertson if he ever tired of caring for Muriel, he replied, tired every night. That's why I go to bed. No, I mean tired of, and the student tilted her head toward Muriel, who sat silently in her wheelchair, her vacant eyes saying, no one at home just now. And his answer was this, why no, I don't get tired. I love to care for her. She's my precious. What a compelling example. And guess how long he sat with Muriel? 12 years. And then he wrote, among his many books, his most compelling book, simply titled, A Promise Kept. That's powerful. That's gospel-powered ministry of a husband. The Spirit wants to fill and empower you, brother, husband. He wants to fill and empower you to love your wife in that way. How much glory would Jesus get if we leaned into that kind of self-giving love? How, how much stability would God build into your home, into your kids, should he bless you in that way, into your family as you give yourself in love to the woman that God has called to serve at your side? Love your wife, too. Make her flourish spiritually. Make her flourish spiritually. So we'll see here in a moment. I'm just going to read to you. But notice when I read it, the kinds of things that Jesus does for his bride, the church, are the kinds of things 
Christian husbands are supposed to do for our brides and the effect of Christ's ministry on his bride, the church, are supposed to have parallel kinds of effects. The work of the husband in his home, in his relationship with his wife, it should have the same kinds of effects. They're parallel. It's an analogy. It's not a one-to-one correspondence, but there's an analogy. Notice verse 25. Jesus gave himself for her, that's the bride, to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Jesus did this to present the church to himself in splendor. Look at her. She's radiant without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. And notice the pivot word in verse 28. In the same way, husbands. I'm not making up the parallel. I'm not making up an analogy. Paul says, You watched what Jesus did and how it affected the church and how she became splendid and radiant with joy through his ministry to the church. That's what you're called to. In the same way, husbands also are to love their wives. This is in your notes. Christ's love for the church provides the pattern for how a husband should treat his wife. We we see here in these verses that Jesus' love for his bride makes the church shine. His, he loves her shining. He loves her toward radiance. Husbands, the way that you love your wife should bring about such a security, such a confidence in God's call on her life, such stability in the strength of that relationship that it's just pouring security into her life. You know, one of, the, one of the coolest people I ever met, I met years ago when I lived in New Orleans. I'm from New Orleans, and I lived in New Orleans, and, and I met a guy who had just come to faith in Jesus. He was a world-class musician, traveled the world with Alan Toussaint, and he played electric guitar and percussion for Alan Toussaint's band. And he came to faith. His name was Renard Poche. Even his name is awesome. Anyway, he, he comes to faith in Jesus, and... Uh, we got a chance to meet, and, and I said, hey, would there be any way, if, when you're in town, for us to have a jam session? And he, wonder of wonders, said, yes. So I got to have a jam session. I got to sit on keys. We had a hall, New Orleans Hall of Fame bass player playing bass. Renard's on electric and percussion. It was like an, just a crazy, awesome experience. And uh, we did that once at his house, and we did it another time in the church building. We turned on all the sound equipment, and we were in the church building. That was the first time that I got to work with Renard was that day. And, uh, and so we're all plugged in. We're waiting on the stage, and Renard comes in. He's got his gear on, his back, and he just walks in. I told my wife later on, it's like Renard walks with a soundtrack. Like, he's one of those people who's just so, he's not pretending anything, he doesn't have to fake anything. It's just him. He just oozes cool factor, walks with a background track. So I, Husbands, your wife ought to walk through life with a background track. There ought to be such a sense of security in your love, such a sense of the affirmation of who God has made her and what her calling is, right? So respected, so cherished, so treasured. You know how God speaks about his bride in the Old Testament? He says, Israel, anybody who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Deep bond, deep affection. I've got your back. Anybody who blesses you is going to be good. Anybody who curses you is going to be curtains. It's not going to go well for them, right? This deep bond. Paul is saying, that, that thing 
that we see in God's covenant with his people, that should be firing left and right in the home. Our English word husband, it has as its root, the second part of that word has as its root something that means tiller of the soil. Husbandry has to do with cultivation. Matter of fact, that term is sometimes used in gardening. It literally has to do with cultivation. Two of my favorite, you guys know I love the Psalms, right? Two of my favorite Psalms are back to back, 127 and 128. And they paint a picture of a Christian home, a home under covenant with God, a a God-fearing home centered on the word of God and God's presence. And you come to Psalm 127, um, unless the Lord builds the house, the one who builds it labors in vain. And then you move deeper and deeper, talks about children are blessing from the Lord. Then you come into chapter 128 and you see the husband is pictured as laboring and his feet are in the, his, his hands are in the ground. He's, he's, the imagery is the work of a gardening husband. And Psalm 128 says, here's what happens when the husband does effective gardening in his household. Listen to it. 128 verse two, you shall eat Husband, you will eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. And look at the fruit. Here's the fruit. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. He's situating the husband at the head of the family table and saying, look down that table and on every side is fruit because you fear the Lord. And that's what God called you to do. And so your wife is over here flourishing. She's like a vine, just outfitted with life and vibrancy and vigor in Christ. And the children as well, like olive shoots around the table. I thought about, as I read this text and thought about Jesus um, ministering to the church and she's splendid and she's radiant. And I thought about people in our church. I thought about wives in our church who are radiant because they've been loved faithfully by a husband over decade after decade after decade. I've got a couple pictures I want to show you just to show you the radiance factor. There it is, right? So this is uh, Linda Thompson and her husband, Gerald. They've been at it for a long time, and yet look at the joy. Look at the radiance. This, This is a woman who, when she talks, you get stronger, if you listen, you get stronger in Christ when she starts talking. Here's another picture. That's uh, Ruth and Buddy Wise. They've been married. I texted her and found it. I thought it was 62 years because last time she and I texted each other, it was 62 years. She told me yesterday, 63. So 63 years young, right? Look at them. If I get 63 years, I want to look just like that. Right, look at, look at his girl, shining, radiant. It's the product of spiritual flourishing in the home. So I want to treat a word in our text that comes up early in the passage that we passed over for the time being, but we're going to come back to it now. It's really a biblical concept, and it's the concept of headship. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands, ask to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Those words are offensive 
to our culture. They're offensive to modern ears. I don't even have to start interpreting or adding comments. Just reading the words in the English language is immediately shocking to our senses in a culture that's allergic to any hint of difference in role in the household. And yet, friends, there is no way around it. Hopefully, we're not trying to get around it. God's word is clear. It says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The question is, what does that mean? So let's dig into it for just a moment. I want to add some statements, some clarifying statements about what does headship mean in the Bible. Number one, a Christian husband is called to be the spiritual leader in the household. That is the plain reading of Ephesians chapter five. You gotta do all kinds of gymnastics to get around the plain reading of Ephesians 5.22. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden before the fall, it's not a result of the fall. Before the fall, Adam was given unique responsibility in his house. That's why even though Eve was the first one to sin and eat the fruit, God came looking for who? For Adam. Adam, where are you? God wanted words with Adam. So there was this responsibility set in place in the home. Husbands, you set the spiritual thermostat in your household for good or ill. You set the spiritual thermostat. It doesn't say that the husband should be the head of the wife. It says he is the, it's not an imperative, it's an indicative. This is the way it is. So the question isn't whether you are exerting leadership, because you are. The question is, is it good leadership or bad leadership? Is it tyrannical leadership or humble leadership? Is it absent leadership? Is it micromanaging leadership? Is it godly leadership? So the question is the quality, not the presence. The presence is there by God's design. God calls Christian husbands to steward that role for the spiritual blessing of your household. Second, biblical headship should feel like a responsibility, not a right. You know, we have a name for the kind of leader who always has to pull rank on everybody. A poor leader, <laughs> right? The one who's always flashing the badge. Hey, you know I have the power, right? That, that's a bad leader. That, that's not God's design. You think about leadership in the church. So there is authority structure in the church. Elders are called overseers is the language that's used. And yet, when the apostle Peter writes to elders, he says, shepherd, fellow elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, and he says this, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. It's not kick the saloon doors open and tell everybody I'm in charge. That's not biblical leadership in the church. That's not biblical leadership in the home. Lead by example, lead by influence. Next, Biblical headship is exercised under God's word. So husbands don't have discretion to lead how they want to. Husbands don't have the option to usurp the word of God, the commands of God, to violate God's commands, to ask their family or ask their wives to do something that God forbids. You don't have that authority. That's above your pay grade. He is Lord of the conscience, not not you, right? The government, think about this. So are we supposed to obey the government? Yes, absolutely. The government is given authority by God, but that authority is not absolute. 
That's why in the New Testament, when they say you can't preach anymore, the apostles said what? You can figure out whether it's wise to obey God or man, but we have to do this, right? Somebody above the king, there's a king over the king. There's a Lord over the lords, and he has spoken on this issue, and it's time to preach, whether you like it or not, right? We must obey God rather than man. The same thing is true of the leadership in the home. The husbands are given a role of leadership in the home, but it's not an absolute leadership. Brothers, husbands, it should be evident to everyone you lead that you are under authority, and happily so, gladly under the authority of God's word, humble before God's word. The prophet Isaiah says that God is inclined to the one who trembles at his words. Husband, that ought to be you, shaken like a leaf under, with reverence for whatever God says next is the direction we're going in by God's grace as a family. I've encountered some husbands over the years who, who love very much to remind their wives to submit to them, but those same men don't submit to the elders of their church. In other words, they're all over the authority thing when they're on top. Here's where you gain credibility, husband, when you're under authority and you display submission to authority, authority of the government, authority of law enforcement, authority of elders, and so forth. You yourself embrace, happily embrace authority. You live in that world. You don't require other people to live in a world you don't live in. Next, biblical headship imitates the demeanor and character of Christ. What's the demeanor and character of Christ? Matthew chapter 11. I am meek in his deepest heart, Jesus says. Here's what I'm like. I'm meek and lowly of heart, and you come to me, you find rest for your souls. And he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I've seen some women who they walk with their husbands, and his yoke does not look easy. His burden does not look light. You can see it in her face. You can see it in her eyes. She lives with an oppressive man, and she's not growing spiritually and flourishing spiritually. She's spiritually anemic, and that's, that's not because of anything that she's doing wrong. It's because she's using all the energy that she would have used to grow spiritually. She's using to survive this man. That's not biblical leadership. That's not Ephesians 5 headship. Jesus is the head of the church, and he says, church, you come on in. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Next. Biblical headship doesn't just talk. It listens. Biblical headship doesn't just talk. It listens. So in the book of Esther, we have a classic example of this because Esther the queen knows something the king doesn't know, right? And if she doesn't get an audience with the king, if the king doesn't listen to what Esther says, thousands of people are going to die. It's going to be for the good of thousands of people if the king listens to Esther. What a picture that is, right? R.C. Sproul, I love what he said, the late R.C. Sproul. He said, when Adam was created with dominion over the earth, Eve ruled over the earth as his helpmate, not his servant. God made Adam king over creation and gave Eve to him as his queen, not his slave. That's Biblical, beautiful, compelling marriage. Look, let me just be really practical. A husband who makes all the decisions in the home or what you consider to be all the big decisions, you've cut the flow of God's wisdom by 50% at least. 
That's in my house is probably 70%, right? You, you have impoverished your own house. God has filled that woman up with his word and his wisdom and discretion and spiritual gifts. Get them activated for the good of your household, the good of your marriage, the good of your future together. Next, biblical headship doesn't just listen, it talks. So this is the opposite error, right? There's, there's a ditch on either side of the road, isn't there? So often. So there's one ditch where you can go into kind of overlording authoritarian leadership on this side. You pull off, off the road or you swerve off this side of the road and that's abdicating leadership, utterly passive. She bears the load. She disciplines the children. She decides when you're going to church and when you're not. She answers all the theological questions that the kids ask. Look, if the kid pulls up and says, I, I got this question about the Bible and you say, go ask your mom. That's spiritually dysfunctional. If the child asks mom, praise God, mom's going to know the answer. Awesome. That's glorious. But if the child pulls up and asks you, you answer the question. And if you say, I don't know the answer, find the answer. Get a study Bible. Email an elder. Right? Let the church help come alongside. Hey, bro, we got your back. We, we can answer this together. Let's dig into the word together. If, if, you're, um, if your family only goes to church on the Sundays that your wife gets everybody up and in gear, that's good on her. That's terrible on you. Because why? What does that tell me? It tells me she's rowing alone. And that's not biblical Christianity. That's not spiritual leadership. You're rowing. Your back is in it, right? You're leading out. You're setting the pace of spiritual initiative in your home. Brothers, let's be convictional. Let's learn the word. Let's learn theology. Let's dig into texts. Let's read great books. Let's pray hard for our families and our own lives. Let's center our families on the word of God. Let's read the thing out loud. Let's pray. Let's be biblical husbands because that brings about through the work of the Holy Spirit, flourishing in the family. Biblical headship doesn't just listen, it talks. Love your wife, make her flourish spiritually. And third, let your marriage tell the big story. Let your marriage tell the big story of Christ's love for the church. We'll just fill in that next blank while we're here. Christian marriage is meant to be an earthly representation of the relationship between Christ and his church. In other words, your love story with your wife is meant to gesture in the direction of the ancient love story of God and his people. The, the story of Jesus and how he has loved the church and gave himself for her. You, you remember the story of the gospel, right? We were joined together with God in the beginning and then we walked out on him. We broke the covenant and then the rest of scripture is God chasing the girl his unfaithful wife, and he's coming after her, and he's wooing her in the wilderness. He's calling her to himself. He's making promises. When you come back to me, the false gods are going to use you up. Come back to me. He's calling his people, and here we go, off wandering from the fold of God. And the wonder is that God puts his son on the cross so that he might get his bride. God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still chasing other loves, Christ died for us. That's the message of Christianity. Doesn't anything that you love more than God, that thing is killing you. 
It's right now that thing is killing you. Why? Because you were made for God. You were made to be satisfied only in him. And so the only answer to our guilt, our shame, our sin is Jesus dying in our place. So what does that mean for us this morning? That means if you've never embraced a relationship with Jesus and called him Lord and Savior and submitted your life to his rule, that's your next move. Before you start talking about being a husband, hey, let's get this right. Let's get you folded into the life of the church where Jesus says, I'm gonna make you shine. I'm gonna make you radiant. And then you're gonna bring blessing into your household. Ephesians 5 says to husbands, love your wife in such a way that people get a glimpse of that story. There was a group of speeches that, um, that was given the night, as you, many, many of you here, if you go to a rehearsal dinner the night before a wedding and lots of people will stand up and say different things. And, and uh, in this one, the, the bride who was gonna be married the very next day, she stood up uh, last and she addressed her parents. And she said beautifully meaningful things about her mom. And then she directed her attention to her dad. And she said, Dad, um, you're the most generous man I've ever known. And she said, you have given us, your daughters, everything. You've held nothing back. And he said, he interrupted her and he said, with tears, he said, it was pure joy. And he said, he said this, if I had more, I would have given you more. Here's this picture of the husband loving his wife, and the picture is just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus speaking and saying, I love you to his church, I love you to his bride, back against the wood. If I had any more, I would have given it. So I gave you my life. And Paul says, that is husbandry. That's compelling that's powerful. I'm not talking about bootstrap. I'm not talking about self-effort, self-reliance. The gospel powers a biblical marriage. 